welcome back to Indoor Voices as we begin Season 5. I'm Kathleen Collins, librarian at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation between Aaron Thompson and Todd Fine. It's about a very hot yet very old topic. Aaron is a professor of fraud, forensics, art, law, and crime in the Department of Art and Music at John Jay. Her first book, Possession, The Curious History of Private Collectors, was published by Yale University Press in 2016, and her next book will be out in the world in early 2022. That one, Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, published by Norton, is the one that brings her to Indoor Voices. She's interviewed by Todd Fine, a PhD candidate in history at the CUNY Grad Center. Todd's also the president of the Washington Street Advocacy Group, which works for historic preservation in the little Syria neighborhood of Lower Manhattan. Aaron and Todd met via public art Twitter, or monument Twitter, as these controversial issues have been debated in live protests and online over the last few years. They met for the first time in person via this podcast. I hope you'll enjoy their stimulating and thought-provoking conversation. Here's Aaron Thompson and Todd Fine. Let's start with a, a simple question. What is a monument? How does it differ from a memorial? Uh, what, is, what is the purpose of a monument? Oh, such a simple question. What's a monument? No, that's more or less impossible to answer. And uh, I didn't really try. In the book, I, I wrote about controversial monuments, which is really narrowing it down. So uh, there are plenty of things that nobody gives much of a thought to. Uh, sculptures in in graveyards uh, of somebody's great-grandfather. Uh, there are uh, lots of works on private property that I didn't consider either. So I really looked at uh, public arts uh, about the past, I guess you would say, is, is as much as I narrowed it down. Um, so some of what I say is going to be applicable to, to a lot of other things and, and some not. Well, t- typically we're thinking about monuments maybe that are controlled by the government or installed by the government. And in that case, the monuments may be saying something about authority or power. What, what could they be? What are, typically are they saying? Well, again, just to disagree with you a little bit, I'm, I'm starting out very adversarial, but, but it's important because we think of public art as installed by, controlled by the government, but I found, which was really honestly surprising to me, that huge amounts of the sculptures on public grounds in America were not put there through some sort of democratic, publicly accountable process, but uh, were paid for and designed by very small groups of people for very particular purposes who sort of got to impose these images and ideas on a general viewing public because they had enough power to align themselves with the government. So if you see something on the courthouse lawn, you think that's something that the government is advocating, but really very often it was just a couple of people with enough uh, passion or enough box to put it up there and to keep it up there through Uh, the passage of laws that make it very difficult to take down any monuments once they go up. Right, so we we might think that monuments create social uh, 
uh, stability by creating a hegemonic narrative about history, but it might actually be a, a minority narrative that's that's being installed for for some political reason. I think very much so. So one of the monuments I investigated is the Confederate monument in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, which was put up supposedly to honor the memory of the Confederate dead. Uh, the the inscription on the base uh, is a quote from Jefferson Davis uh, saying that the crowning glory of their lives, of Confederate veterans' lives, uh, was the, the manner of their deaths. So I guess not Confederate veterans, <laughs> those who, who died during the, the Civil War. But the city of Birmingham wasn't founded until 1871, well after the close of the war. Nobody from Birmingham died in the Civil War because there was no city of Birmingham then. Uh, instead, the monument went up in two parts in 1894 and 1911 in response to threatened strikes from area miners. And these strikes were organized by interracial unions and the mine owners and managers, the elite of Birmingham, panicked. Uh, they didn't want to have to pay their workers more, uh, so they figured out all sorts of strategies for discouraging this organization. Uh, they banned interracial meetings, um, things like that, but they also put up this monument to remind white workers that uh, racial lines were more important than class allegiance. Uh, so the monument might seem to be about this long distance past, but it's actually uh, put up by people who wanted to have a very real effect in the present. Right, so if poor white workers knew that, they might want to smash the monument. Well, this is something that really motivated me writing the book, is that uh, sometimes I think, you know, a pat on the back can push you into danger. And there are so many people who are defending monuments saying, well, this is honored my ancestors. And if you look a little harder, I don't think that's true. I think many more people should be outraged uh, about the messages of monuments uh, when they're actually assuming that they're praising them. Right. Now, now, people haven't only been smashing statues recently. I mean, you point out that that has both an ancient history and also a more modern contemporary history. Maybe you could briefly go into your thesis that, that smashing statues is nothing new. So I was motivated to write this book because I tweeted something about uh, a smashing of a statue. Uh, and um, a lot of people, there's hundreds of comments on this, thousands of comments on this. Uh, a lot of people saying, you know, it's, it's so barbaric uh, to, to think about even removing a statue, much less smashing one. And as an ancient art historian, I thought, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> you know, we only have statues from the ancient world uh, because people at some point smashed them and threw them in a trash heap. Uh, and then they, they got preserved that way. No, all right, only as an exaggeration, but still. The, the whole history of human art making has also been a history of other humans deciding to get rid of the art that they don't agree with. Uh, so it's true that relatively few statues have come down in America in the last hundred or so years, but this is totally exceptional in, the, in human history. So I, write, I wrote the book in part because I think we've kind of forgotten um, that this is a totally legitimate and uh, historical mode of, of dealing with changing values. You know, if you think that a monument is there, 
to encode the value of a community, once those values change, statues are going to change too, one way or another. And you also point out that in, in American history, you tell these episodes when we have gotten rid of statues for various reasons, starting with right here in New York City, uh, King George in Bowling Green, but then you also tell some interesting stories about uh, monuments that refer to Native Americans in an offensive way or don't, uh, don't respect George Washington and how they're presented. So uh, are, do you think that that kind of uh, objections to statues have some continuity with the, the fights today? Yeah. Uh, so I, I do love the fact that the very first um, bronze set, well, we thought it was bronze. We, we kind of got uh, fooled by the English manufacturer. So it was actually lead, coated in gold. But our, our very first metal statue that we got in America, we promptly ripped it down and melted into bullets. You know, <laughs> we started off as Americans very sure that we wanted art that properly reflected our values. So a few days after the first reading of the Declaration of Independence in New York, uh, new Continental Army soldiers pulled down a statue of King George because they thought, we don't want to be ruled by a tyrant anymore. We don't want art that honors him. Uh, I talk in the early part of the book about a couple other notable examples of statue removal, let's say, to be a little more you know, circumspect. Uh, but what those have in common is that people in power decided they didn't agree with the values of the statue anymore. So those statues went away into storage, accidentally dropped by a crane, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what's different today is not the idea that people would take down statues they don't want to see anymore. It's that people who are not in, who don't have enough power to take those statues down are making those demands. Um, and I think that's not necessarily because of the type of people who are calling for those statues removal. There are plenty of people. Um, for the first time ever, uh, polls show that the majority of Americans think that Confederate statues uh, should be re-examined and perhaps taken down. The problem is that um, we now have in most states very um, specific laws designed to protect historic monuments, by which I don't mean really old monuments, I mean monuments depicting history. So there are, in most places in the US, no democratic way to remove a statue, to have this sort of change. So I think that the one of the big factors behind so many toppling, so many violent removals of statues over the last year or so is, is not because people are any more violent than at any time, it's because they realized how any peaceful routes to removal or reconsideration have been blocked. Right. Well, that could, that maybe resonates with the revolution in the sense that if, if people don't feel that their political system represents them, they're going to attack symbols that they see of that. In this case, maybe right now we're dealing with people who feel there's so much inequality or racism where they live that they're lashing out at the symbols. Is that what's happening? I think it's a way not, I mean, I, to say that they're lashing out at symbols makes it seem futile. Okay. Right, but um, taking down a symbol is a good way to show that you won't be ignored, um, to turn attention to other issues. And also there's some interesting preliminary research that shows that being 
forced to to look at a statue honoring a history you find traumatic is a way of re-traumatizing like every single right. day. Um, we had that in New York City with Mary, uh, J. Marion Sims. Exactly. So do you want to be, you know, reminded of all that pain and suffering every time you walk down Fifth Avenue? And even more cruelly, not just as a memorial or something purporting to honor the victims, but something that's honoring the man who tortured them. No, nobody wants that. And I think more and more people are realizing that that is an effect of a lot of, a lot more monuments. Now, another thing you, you, you talk a lot about in your book is the context of the creation of the monuments. Uh, you point out some of the people who worked on the monuments. In some cases, you, you have a, a case where there's a slave who worked on the monument and is not recognized. And also, uh, maybe the maintenance, for instance, of um, Stone Mountain in Georgia. You talk about how it's maintained by prisoners or was maintained by prisoners. Why do you think that the politics of the creation of the monument is necessary for us to think about whether it should be preserved or whether, what message it sends? Oh, you're asking the good questions. <laughs> the hard ones. Um, because I'm not entirely certain why I got so into some of those stories. Because to me, in theory, it should just be the, the current effect of a monument. Um, the, the message it's sending to audiences right now. Uh, who cares how it was made? You know, did somebody eat bologna for lunch before he carved the nose? You know, it shouldn't matter. Um, but I found uh, these stories of the creators fascinating, I think in part because they helped me ask more questions about what message the monuments were actually sending. Uh, so I wrote a chapter about Stone Mountain, which is um, the world's largest Confederate monument carved onto the side of a granite mountain outside Atlanta. Uh, and it has um, General Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and Confederate President Jefferson Davis riding across the mountain. Uh, it's still uh, the monument in its surrounding park is Georgia's most visited tourist destination with over 4 million visitors a year. Most of them are there to go, you know, play softball, enjoy the, the grounds, but, but still. Uh, all this recreation is loomed over by this Confederate monument. And uh, the state of Georgia took over the project in the 1950s. Uh, after a long delay, the private group that had organized to, to create it went broke, partially because um, all the donations were embezzled by the Klansmen who led the, the project, big surprise. Um, but the state of Georgia, in, a, in the process of resisting integration, took over the project to, to create what the governor literally called a rallying point for, for those who believed, as he did, that the races should never mix. And in order to have this park and monument be self-sustaining, uh, the state established a labor camp there, a prison camp. So incarcerated men uh, had to landscape the park, they created a dam, they picked up garbage, they maintained everything. They made the existence and the finishing of this monument, which wasn't completed until 1970, uh, possible. So thinking about 
some of these men who expected to spend a life sentence in the shadow of the Confederacy, literally, um, made me realize more just who is left out, whose histories are not just silenced, but, but regarded as worthless by these mountain-sized Confederate leaders. Uh, it's not possible, I think, to honor the Confederacy without dishonoring uh, black Southerners whose suffering made the Confederacy possible. And I hope trying to tell this story, which was surprisingly um, uncovered in a lot of, of the writings about Stone Mountain I found, I, found um, I hope that will make that, that issue clear. Now, as we're doing this uh, podcast, the last Confederate monument on Monument Avenue in Richmond has just been uh, dismantled a few weeks ago. But thinking about Stone Mountain, I mean, that is kind of the final boss of a Confederate monument. I mean, how could you ever, you know, smash a mountain? Or we're going we're gonna to have to, you know, I guess maybe we could read, just put another design over it. Or uh, to me, that is it's kind of like that monument is so huge. Could it ever be? Uh, smash? Will it be smashed? You talk in your book how there's some new leadership there. What do you think will happen with, with Stone Mountain, and how does that test you know, how far this smashing statues phenomenon might go? Well, we could do what happened in 1924 when the first monumental head of Robert E. Lee carved onto Stone Mountain was blasted off because they fired the sculptor and they hired somebody else who didn't want to complete somebody else's work. Uh, so there's already been a removal on Stone Mountain. Would we could we... put Martin Luther King there, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's a little too much. <laughs> That'd be on the nose. You know, in the, the uh, March on Washington speech, he said, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain in Georgia precisely because it was so far-fetched and preposterous that racial equality could ever reach you know, this point, uh, not only because of the monument, but because the Ku Klux Klan was revived in a ceremony atop Stone Mountain twice. Yeah, so I'm not too worried about the mechanics. Uh, it's, it's the Stone Mountain Memorial Association, I think is what it's called, but the the group in charge of the monument and the park, which is still a state-affiliated group, the governor gets to elect its leadership. So for the first time this year, they have uh, the president, I believe, is, is a black man. So the first president was the Klansman. Now we have someone whose point of view is very different, but uh, still sort of beholden to the, the powers of the state to make decisions. But I think what's really going to change it is the powers of capitalism, uh, because they need a new, uh, someone to run the concessions. There's some technical term, which I'm forgetting, a concessionaire or something like that. And nobody is willing to do it. A lot of of concessionaires um, have pulled out because they don't want to be associated with a giant Confederate memorial. Right. So I think they might soon realize that if they want anybody to you know, rent the kayaks and sell sodas in the refreshment stands, they are not going to be able to cling on to right. this past. Well, and, that, and that seems to be happening with other states like Mississippi and Alabama and South Carolina. They are reevaluating their flags and their monuments based off of economic pressure or sanctions. I mean, is that maybe how this is all, the final Confederate monuments will be removed? Maybe. I think it's a, as good as any a route <laughs> to doing so, because 
the power to make these decisions is concentrated in state legislatures. So uh, the courts aren't really willing to do a whole lot about it on the analogy of flag cases. So there were suits for decades saying, could hey, Mississippi, maybe stop having the Confederate battle flag as part of its flag. Uh, and the court said, this is a, a judicial, I mean, this is a, an issue for the legislature, not a judicial issue. Uh, and there's a lot of horse trading that goes on in these legislatures. And um, Confederate heritage is a big hot potato and, and nobody really wants to to take it on. So I think it's going to take some, some big pressures. Right. Now, oftentimes we think about that, the opposition coming from the right or the extreme right, but there's also seems to be a contingent on the left that feels that getting involved in these, you know, identity politics is a distraction or is uh, focusing on monuments is, is, an, uh, is it takes place instead of maybe so focusing on economic or other social issues. How, do you respond to that? Do you have thoughts on that? This is something that, that I hesitated about. You know, should I write a book on it? Especially this summer, right? The, the monuments protest took place as part of protests over the death of George Floyd, over police brutality, over... Um, racial inequalities of all types. So are the monuments just convenient meeting spots to kick off a protest, or are they actually important? So I decided I wouldn't presuppose that. I would, I would ask the people. So another of the chapters of the book is based on an interview with Mike Forcha, an indigenous activist who toppled the Statue of Columbus in um, the Minnesota state capitol in, in St. Paul. And he had amazingly complex and interesting ideas about why removing this particular monument was important, about the way he structured the monument to get out a message. Uh, for instance, he um, had the ropes pulled by indigenous women um, to draw attention to issues of missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, so I don't think I can answer whether, you know, it's quote-unquote worth it to focus on removals of monuments, but I, I tried to listen to people who thought it was indeed worthwhile. And I was glad I did because in a lot of the coverage of these monuments protests, I was really surprised at how, how much people assumed that they knew about why a protest was done, why a monument was attacked. Um, without really bothering to, to ask many people. So I was the, the first person to do an in-depth interview with, with Mike, and which continued to blow me away. You know, now more people are talking to him in part because I'm connecting him with more people, but you, you, can't, right. you can't presuppose these things. Now, you, you study art crime, and that he, he did it almost as a premeditated crime. Is that right? I mean, this was... Uh, something he wanted to do for a long time. He told people that he was going to to do it, and then he did it and brought people together. Does that did, does that change the way uh, you see? I mean, sometimes people think of smashing statues as mob activity, but is it is it typically mob activity, or is it is it premeditated? Well, and the fact that he thought so carefully about this made me want to talk to him even more because he is a long-term community activist. So he is actually out there doing the direct actions, um, bringing food to unhoused people, advocating for survivors of violence, et cetera, et cetera. He, so he was putting all of this 
in danger by the potential of getting a, a criminal charge. I think one way to answer your question more directly is to say that the media image of statue smashing over the last year or so has been one of sort of mobs running around. Um, but actually, I, I sat down, I made myself a spreadsheet of all of the statue removals. Um, and the percentage of statues taken down by unauthorized people or even damaged is, is pretty small of the whole. Most of the, the majority, the great majority of the statues that came down last year came down through official action. Um, some of that was local officials saying, yeah, we agree with the protesters. This thing needs to go someplace else. Some of it was local officials saying, and essentially, no, we love this statue and we need to protect it, so therefore we're going to put it in, you know, protective custody for a while. Well, they also wanted to maintain order, right? They right. knew if they right. didn't act, there would be active disorder. So the potential for disorder was more harmful to them than the uh, the cost of removing the statue. Yeah, because it's dangerous to pull down a statue. Please do not do it by yourself. <laughs> Uh, or even in a crowd, probably even worse in a crowd. Have people died from pulling down a statue or been seriously harmed in the last year? Uh, there's one man who had a piece of a tumbling statue fall on him. Um, he was in a coma for a while. He's recovering now, but still um, very medically compromised. Uh, the only death of which I'm aware is someone who was shot by a counter-protester trying to protect a statue of a Spanish colonizer in New Mexico. Um, so the idea to me that, that not only people could risk harm to want to remove statues, but that people could kill to protect them. Uh, these things that in our normal lives we usually regard of, as, as, you know, only of interest insofar as saying, okay, ultimate Frisbee team meets at the, the statue in the park on Saturday, you know. Uh, how did they suddenly become these flashpoints today? It was so fascinating to me. <laughs> Now, you also point out that most of the statues that were smashed, let's say, even the ones that were smashed, had existing uh, efforts within the legal system to remove. I mean, people had written articles about them. They had gone to their community board or, or, or their legislature to ask for them to be removed. And then maybe years or decades had passed with no action. Is that, is that correct? Exactly. You know, it's not people rolling out of bed and deciding, today I hate Columbus. It's <laughs> many of these cases, the statues were reviled for decades. Um, and either uh, people were told there's no legal way to remove them, or I think more harmfully almost, people were told, okay, we're thinking about it. You know, we've received your petition. But then those petitions went actually nowhere. So in the case of the St. Paul Columbus statue, Mike Forcia had filed you know, paperwork to ask the what he was told was the relevant commission of the state capitol to, to reconsider the statue. Uh, uh, even on the day when he was out there, uh, because he had announced it beforehand, you know, uh, state troopers came by with a little printout saying, you know, here's this, the statute that tells you where to go to ask for this removal. Um, and then afterwards, that, that board announced, okay, we didn't really have any procedure for considering removal requests. Like, they had just, you know, put his petitions in the circular file and more or less lied to him that there would be a, a democratic process that never was. Right. Now, now I think when people... Uh, oppose the next statue, they're not going to be able to delay it so long, perhaps. So, you know, I'm thinking, 
in some cases you're seeing government officials or maybe advocates of these statues go through the stages of grief. And one of the stages that they're coming into is bargaining. Right, they're saying, well, maybe could we put a sign next to the monument that explains this was a bad guy, or could we maybe have another monument of a, a nice person next to the bad guy? You know, if you have a Columbus, maybe we could put him to it next to a nice, you know, wholesome Native American. Um, what are your thoughts on these bargaining strategies? <laughs> I love that the stages of grief. Uh, well. Before I give you my thoughts on that, an another little clarification that some officials are doing this sort of like, well, let's fix it. A lot others are are doubling down. So another of my extensive spreadsheets was tracking legislative proposals. Um, and almost every state has, since the summer of 2020, uh, considered bills that would make the penalties for monument destruction harsher. Uh, or would make it more difficult bureaucratically to try and remove... Including President Trump. Yes, exactly. Uh, he is not the only one. You know, that was the most notorious, but every, almost every state legislature is off, are off... Almost every state legislature has tried to do the same thing. Um, so there are plenty of reactions to protests against monuments that are trying to make it harder to remove monuments. The other reaction seems to be uh, a conciliatory uh, approach. So we've been talking about smashing statues, uh, but that hasn't actually really happened. There hasn't been uh, a single figural public monument um, that has been uh, removed from permanently from circulation. Uh, there are, and, and I say figural monument, I only know of one merely textual monument that was was uh, taken out of public view. Everything else is in storage, uh, awaiting some decision about relocation, or has already been relocated uh, to historic cemeteries is a popular choice, or given back to um, the Confederate or other heritage organizations that sponsored in the first place, and they're free to put it on you know, private land, but some place that's, that's pretty visible. Now, before we get to the signage question, you, it seemed like you're concerned about these things being warehoused. Is that because you're afraid that they might be brought back in, a, in, in and, and that defeats the purpose of them being removed? Or do you feel that there's, they really do need to be smashed? Well, I certainly do not want a future where they operate as America's strategic racism reserve, where we can just <laughs> yank them out of storage and put them back on display when we're all happy about white supremacy again or something like, like that. That's no good. <laughs> if they're in storage, I guess fine. You know, another of my chapters, I interviewed the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, who is the first official to order the removal of a monument in the summer of 2020. And I asked him if he was concerned because it's just in storage. It, it might be able to be redeployed elsewhere. And he's like, I don't care. You know, <laughs> it was enough time and effort to get the thing removed. He thought he was risking criminal prosecution being disbarred, removed from office, like it's, it's down, he's done thinking about it, at least for a while. Uh, so I can see the reaction of not caring about things, but... In, in New York City, we have J. Marion Sims, right, who's in storage, I believe, and he's supposed to be put in Greenwood Cemetery. What do you... Actually... What do you know? Have you have any in, info on that? So I do, because I emailed Greenwood Cemetery, because I was so curious. So, um... 
there's a big controversy about this statue. Uh, in the middle of it, Greenwood Cemetery sort of voluntarily jumps in and says, well, we'll take it. Why don't you take it down and we'll take it and put it on his grave, um, which is in this And they have, we should add, they already have civic virtue, another monument that's been put in there as, a, as the kind of the dumpster. Uh, yeah, with, with, with signage that sort of recontextualizes it. Um, and so they said they'd do the same thing with the Sim statue. We'd add some, some signage to recontextualize it. Then crickets since then. There was some protest uh, about that idea. So I, f- I think, what was that, more than two years ago that the, that was removed? Some, 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 some I, I COVID was, messes with our time perception, unfortunately. Tr- but I was surprised there hadn't been any action. So I, I emailed them and they got back to me and said, we have no plans at this time to display the statue. Because I think they realized how, what are you supposed to write on a sign? Like what couple hundred words are gonna make it okay? Uh, to, to display that. It's not, it's not possible. <laughs> so um, they got a hot potato, and now they have to pay the storage fees for that hot potato, I guess. Indefinitely. Okay. So that, that gets back to signage. You know, the, it, With Civic Virtue in Greenwood Cemetery, they did put a sign next to it. Maybe that, one's, that, that attacks women in general, so maybe, that's, uh, maybe it should be more of a constituency group that's opposed to it, but it's, it's not so much. I mean, when you have a statue that's going after a racial group, particularly, or attacking Native Americans, which is, you have some examples in the book, can signage atone for for a statue, especially if it if it seems like it's implying violence or a, a power relation? Well, I have a couple of ways of answering that. One, I think no, because images and texts enter our brains in different ways. And statues, a lot of these statues are incredibly beautiful. They're of, you know, super ripped, handsome or beautiful people and it's hard for your brain to um you know as any viewer of the bachelorette or the bachelor will attest (laughs) for us to uh, remember to impose judgment on someone who's super good looking so you're like oh i would follow that person wherever they led me robert e lee is such a hunk he's not such a hunk but there are plenty of um you know the the spirit of confederate virtue or whatever that's uh, what I'm thinking of that uh, was rehomed in the Houston Museum of African American Culture is like literally a naked dude with wings holding a sword in front of his genitals. You know, <laughs> he's handsome uh, because, and he's supposed to convince you that the Confederacy is beautiful as well. And it's just hard to tell your brain to remember the difference between visual and text. But those types of debates apply only if you think that people are actually reading the signage. Uh, and I um, talked extensively to uh, an Australian researcher, Laura Jane Smith, uh, who has studied how people actually, you know, what people actually get from the signage in historical memorials or museums um, that seek to challenge people's understandings of history. And it turns out if you don't want to believe something, if you don't want to change your mind, sometimes you will literally not even see the signage, no matter how prominent it is. Or you will find some way to interpret it that doesn't cause you the cognitive dissonance uh, or pain of realizing that you have been believing something wrong. So I, I'm pretty down on the ability of signage to change 
people's minds, uh, especially the type of signage you actually see put up next to monuments. You know, some tiny little thing off to the side with a couple hundred words that have been highly edited not to be super offensive. So what about artistic interventions? You know, I've even heard some people talking about, you know, adding a new character to the scene, you know, to... Uh, or, but more typically, you hear, okay, well, why don't we have a monument that elevates the group or the racial group or ethnic group that's being attacked implicitly through the monument? Would that balance the scale, or is that, is that another ab- absurd approach? I think it really depends. It's not easy. You know, it's not easy to make a great work of art, and especially one where you're not even starting from a blank blank slate you're you're trying to oppose another work of art so people talk about that as if that's an easy solution but it takes a lot of money it takes a lot of community efforts and it takes some great artistic skills I've seen it work um often it seems like we're going to a whole lot of effort to preserve something in place that we could just put elsewhere like in a river I don't know uh but it's been proposal for a while, so there's a great um, book published in 1916 by um, uh, Friedman Murray, uh, a black critic, uh, an activist, a journalist, uh, who looked at representations of emancipation in American sculpture up to that time, and he has a great deal to say about the, the Friedman's Memorial, the Emancipation Memorial in Washington, D.C., where there's Lincoln with a statue of a kneeling uh, newly freed man um, and uh, Murray describes how this kneeling man is so passive so weak so confused looking so entirely unrepresentative of the actual role of black men and black people in general in the Civil War of fighting for their own freedom and he proposes you know why don't we just cut him out you know take the, that kneeling man out of the statue and just make the statue a memorial to President Lincoln, that would be fine. Uh, or he even says retitle it. Um, say, call it Lincoln and the Kneeling Slave, uh, is, is, is in his terms, but you can't call it Lincoln and the Freedman because that man is not free. So here in, in New York City, we had a Monuments Commission uh, two years ago, which confronted some of these racist monuments. They had a list of them to review, and they chose sort of to split the difference. Uh, They chose uh, to get rid of J. Marion Sims, who we've discussed, um, the statue of Theodore Roosevelt at the Natural History Museum. They initially chose not to remove as part of this commission, but then changed their minds during the Black Lives Matter protest. And then in terms of, uh, you know, Christopher Columbus, the massive monument at Columbus Circle, They've decided not to remove uh, and are maintaining it for the time being. Uh, instead, they propose new monuments. And under uh, Mayor de Blasio and his wife, uh, uh, First Lady Shirlane McRae, they've proposed many monuments. In fact, I'm trying to keep track of it. It seems like they may have proposed 12. There's even talk of a 13th one at Queensborough Hall that was just in the papers a few days ago. Uh, but they're not making too much progress with it. They, they seem to think that creating monuments may be easier than it is, or that this is kind of an easy solution, but actually it's, it's a tough thing to do, and it's also a very tough thing to do from top down, to have the leadership decide we're going 
going to create new monuments and this is going to solve all these political uh, diversity and, and representation questions. Do you think that this kind of uh, uh, industrial monument program is is a good one or is are you concerned about where this is heading it's i mean it's it's heading in exactly the same direction that monuments have always been heading in in being created by a very small group of people operating in a totally non-democratic way so to me if new york city is suddenly covered with monuments to people i admire that's not even a good thing because it's the process of coming to community consensus that's important, not having monuments imposed upon us. Um, so the New York City process is frustrating to me in a number of ways. Among them is the sort of pseudo-democratic participation. So they had this announcement, you know, nominate your favorite New York City figure to be a monument. and. You know, then calculated all the results in a way that wasn't really clear. And then they had the sister Cabrini scandal, yeah, they, mother Cabrini. they announced it would be one person, and then other groups of people freaked out, so they <laughs> pushed somebody else up the list. Right. But that's a parlor game in New York, so it's not yeah, so bad. It, it's, it's a part of our life, but I think to be a true reflection of us, monuments need to be made in different ways than they've been made before. Is there a type of monument that you feel is responsive to this moment that we're in um, that works, or is it it's or is it hard to find those types? Well, you know me; I'm an art historian. I'm picky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am often surprised at the types of monuments people say they find inspiration from or emotion from. You know, I'm not a big stand in front of a hunk of marble and, and weep tears of patriotic joy person so i'm probably not the best person to ask i'm a lot better at pointing out the flaws than you'd rather smash than uh, well i'd I'd rather question it's my book proposal i did say i would have a chapter about what sort of monuments we should have and then after thinking about that for a long time i decided nope not not gonna write that that's that's not for me to uh (laughs) to say anything about okay well i I will recommend that people smash one thing, and that is smash down their credit card and buy smashing statues. I think it is an important uh, contribution to our understanding of this moment, and it's, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>